This is episode 10 with Dr. Beverly Jean Daniel. And today we're talking about how us parents should be talking to our kids about racism early on. As a society, so if you look at Stats Canada data, we're not seeing reduction in racism, we're seeing increases in racism. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance, and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Just before we start, I want to say that the first about 17 minutes of this episode, we are talking more generally about racism and racism specifically in North America, so United States and Canada. Why is there racism and why is it showing up in society still today? And the reason why I didn't remove this part because it's not linked directly to some mom-related examples is because this is a topic that will affect your kids growing up in a racist society. And it does affect you as well. Doesn't matter if you're part of minority group that's directly targeted by racist comments or if you're on the other side of the coin part of the majority group, or as we call it, white people. Okay, so I'm talking about the one topic that uh, makes us sometimes uncomfortable. It might get some people emotionally charged because they've have dealt with this in their own life. Or because for you, if you are part of a majority group and you haven't really thought of this, this conversation will be very enlightening. Today, we're talking about how to talk to your kids about racism. Who is Dr. Beverly Jean Daniel? She has a PhD in sociology and equity studies in education, a graduate certificate in women and gender studies. She has a master's in counseling psychology. She's an assistant professor at Ryerson University. University in Toronto, Canada, at the Faculty of Community Service, Child and Youth Care Program. She's very involved in supporting Black youth in the education system and Black females in developing positive racial identity, as well as supporting children in understanding narratives of race and racism did a TEDx talk about the lessons we forget to teach ourselves. She's a diversity management consultant. She has over 25 years of academic work in race, racism, and equity. She developed a program, the Bridge Program, at Humber College in Toronto in 2009, a first-of-its-kind in a Canadian institution to foster and enhance academic success in post-secondary institutions among students who identify themselves as African, Black, or Caribbean. She's a single mother of four. Today, we talk about how racism can appear in your life in different forms, especially for parents, and how we can talk to our kids as they're early on as young school-aged kids. Again, as teenagers and adults, you might not realize is creating racism. Having someone who's experienced it 
directly and her kids have experienced it directly. And she's worked with tons of people that are trying to live their life without um, feeling oppressed in a way. She's very dynamic, very engaging. It was absolutely a pleasure to speak with her. So without further ado, let's listen in on our conversation. Welcome, Dr. Beverly Jean Daniel. Thank you for being on Citrus Love Podcast today. Uh, this is going to be a very refreshing conversation and good reminder for parents so how to talk to our kids about racism. Before we talk about you and the work you do, and I want to start with an essay you wrote, 2017, called When Racism Came Calling. When racism came calling, it came dressed in the bodies of so-called friends and co-workers. When racism came calling, it came with a sounding of soft words and in the form of friendly advice. You need to learn to not take things so personally. You need to not be so angry all the time. You need to understand the rules. When racism came calling, It came looking like a familiar face, like the faces of those who wandered the halls of school and told their children that they were less than good enough, like those who told us that we should be happy to simply exist, not to grow, not to excel, not to be free, but simply to be. They told us we should be happy with the progress that we have made. We were post-racial now. When racism came calling, they told our women they were welfare queens and our men were criminals. When racism comes calling, it feels familiar but different, like a spike bat covered in silken fiber. You feel the hit and the hurt and the violence, but it's dressed up in finest silk. So you question and question and ponder and question once again. You doubt yourself, you doubt your sanity, you question your ability, your capacity, and your very existence. You hurt and you moan and you wail. It can consume you if you let it. But you wake up from the nightmare and you remember that racism never stops or stops calling. The river of violence never stops flowing. But you don't have to answer when racism calls. Instead, you can loudly and with pride Celebrate the beauty of your women, men, and children. You remind them they are resilient, brilliant, and strong. You show them their history and their legacy. And you remind them time and time again that when racism comes calling, you respond with unquestionable, undeniable, unwavering bellows of self-love and dignity. Only then will you be able to drown out the sound of violence when racism comes calling. What was your idea be behind or your motivation to write this? Well, it's interesting. When I wrote this piece, it was sort of my response to ongoing challenges or experiences with racism in my workplace. One of the things that I that often happens when you experience marginalization is that people tend to internalize it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, someone says something, someone does something, and rather than calling it what it is, we tend to try to explain it away. We, are you talking about everyone or who specifically? Well, well, well I, in some ways, I am talking about everyone. And what I mean okay. by is that we may use different types of explanations. For the white person, for example, who engages in, can clearly be identified as a racist behavior, they're going to try to explain it away. Well, I didn't mean you, or I wasn't referring specifically to you, or I was just giving you some advice. 
uh, not because you're black and I'm white, but I'm, you know, but when you look at the nature of the advice, or you look at the nature of the comments, if placed in its appropriate context, both historical and contemporary, you recognize that no, 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 this is about racism. So, for example, someone saying to you, "You speak well, right?" Mm-hmm. and um, or you, or even better, you speak English well. Yes, yes, <laughs> because the assumption uh, is that as a person of color you do not have effective command of English. In their minds, they're paying you a compliment when in effect, it, it really is a very racist comment. So the, the person who, who is engaged in the injustice is going to use a particular way of trying to frame it so that they become innocent. They, they get read as innocent. For the person who is experiencing it, particularly if this is someone who you have built some sort of a, a relationship with at work or, you know, you've engaged with quite positively for the most part, when the comments start coming, you're thinking, well, no, 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 this doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Why would this person who has been with me, around me for all these years still feel the need to to make comments like this? Right? Mm-hmm. So you try to make sense of it as a person who has been hit. Maybe they're just having a bad day or um, maybe it, I'm overreacting. And that that's one of the things that we tend to do for those of us who are racialized. We often go into caring mode that we're trying to take care of the person who's inflicted the pain upon us. Right. And what happens then is that we are carrying multiple burdens burden of care for trying to care for the person who's inflicted the violence, while at the same time, we're trying to take care of ourselves and make sense of the violence, of the toxicity of it all. And in the midst of all of this, we are also having to almost police our own reaction to these behaviors, because then if you react in a particular way, then you're being too sensitive, being too angry. Um, You're overreacting. Right. So, yeah, there are there are ways in which people try to explain it away. So for me, this was really about saying you can experience racism, but you sort of have to think about what aspect of it do you own and what aspect of it do you reject? Hmm. And a part of that rejection in terms of the impact of racism is really about creating a protective armor around yourself. Is that a good thing? Oh, absolutely. So when I say a protective armor, what I mean, and if if you look at, you know, as I end it, I say that when it comes calling, you respond with unquestionable, undeniable, unwavering bellows of self-love and dignity. Mm -hmm. So it is in the act of ensuring that you are solid in yourself Mm. that you're going to be able to challenge racism. So do you think it's better to reply to the person and say, like, I did not appreciate that comment. Because sometimes when you don't say anything, you accept their comment. And oftentimes, they don't realize the negative impact Mm -hmm. it can have on the other person. You know, so part of it responding to that question is in terms of recognizing just how pervasive racism is. Uh, Racism is not something that that happens once in a a while. Mm -hmm. It's happening almost every single day. So then you're almost forced to make a decision in terms of what am I going to take up and what am I not going to take up? Mm. So you can't respond to every single incident and survive, right? Mm. You almost have to make very strategic decisions in terms of what am I going to respond to, right? You know, you're driving someplace and uh, someone throws the N-word at you, 
mm-hmm. right? Do you stop and, and address it? Or you go into a store and you're being followed. Are you in the, the mental space to address it? Are you, do you have the energy to address it in that moment versus you're with a coworker who you're going to have to continue to work with, right? Do you take it up and how do you take it up? Or what if the racism is coming from a direct supervisor? Mm. Do you take it up or not take it up, right? Um, And what are the potential consequences of taking it up? Because what we know is that when you do take it up and when you do address it, you're often uh, exposed to even more. Wow. That's, uh, wow. It shouldn't be that way, but I guess that's the reality. Mm. Exactly. So I think it's easy on the one hand to say, well, yes, you should address Mm. it because the person needs to learn. And and my argument is that I think first and foremost, you have to take care of yourself Mm. and you have to know whether or not you are in a place where you have the psychic energy to allow you to pick up somebody else's garbage again. Oh, wow. That's how I tend to frame it, right? Racism is not my problem as a Black person. Racism is somebody else's problem that they keep throwing in my yard. Okay, so let's define right now what is racism. So when we're looking at racism, and and I'm going to look at it in terms of a um, specifically a North American context, because I think this is where it becomes really messy because people have this idea that if you and I are of a different racial background, and I as a um, as a racialized person say something to you as a white person, that's racism. Well, no, that's that's discrimination. And here's Mm. what we mean by that: racism requires that you have systemic power behind you to allow you to engage in racist ways. So let let's break that down. We can't look at the current understandings of racism without understanding the way in which historically groups, particularly Europeans, amassed power for themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the process of, mass, of amassing that power, what they did was they also then took power away from other groups. So mm-hmm. whether we're talking about indigenous populations, whether we're talking about blacks, there was a very intentional shifting of relations of power, wherein which Europeans controlled the power and power was stripped from the other groups. That power was then embedded in every single social institution, schools, churches, healthcare, you name it, right? And in embedding that power, what was done was that they ensured that those who were racially white got more access to every form of social capital, where you live, where you go to school, the type of education you have, the ideologies of the society, they're all predominantly European-based ideology, right? So when we're looking at racism, we need to understand the extent, the, the way in which racism is also connected to power and who has the power to structure social relations. So as a white person, you have that system behind you that is set up to benefit you and those who look like you. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, that system is also impacting on non-white populations in terms of what types of education do they have access to? What types of jobs do they get access to? Are they given permission, quote unquote, to move up the ladder into leadership role, right? So Mm -hmm. if you look at the government of Canada, for example, it is predominantly white. Yeah. Right. And not just predominantly white, it's predominantly white, male and middle class to upper middle class. Right. Mm -hmm. The government of Canada does not reflect the diversity of the Canadian population. Yeah. And we call ourselves a multicultural country. Exactly. So to really understand racism, we have to look at the extent to which who has the power to impact on the way in which other groups and communities experience the world. 
we know that there's something called this individual racism. And those are the sort of the one-on-one act, where in which someone might be called the N-word or someone um, might have a slight made against them because they're part of the First Nations communities. So if those slights are coming from white bodies, that's considered to be racism, simply because those who are white have the power mm. of the system behind them, which backs them up. Got right. it. Um, if I, as a as a black person, called you, said something to you as a white woman, I don't have the power of the system backing me up that tells me that my comments are acceptable. So that's where it becomes more um, stereotyping, prejudice, discrimination, as opposed okay. to racism. So I, I started off by saying, let's get it in the North American context. Right. Mm-hmm. If you go to another part of the globe, the markers may not be skin color based racism. It could be language. It could be religion, right? It could be culture that is a foundational marker in terms of who has access to power and who has power stripped away from them. Mm -hmm. So when you look at racialized groups in Canada, for the most part, we do not control the systems, right? We don't control the schools. We don't control the healthcare. We don't control politics. Mm -hmm. But it's important to understand that the seat of power in Canada has not shifted at all. It is still firmly entrenched in the hands of white males. So let's talk specifically about parenting and kids and how this can apply to them. I mean, most parents I know talking about racism with their kids makes them uncomfortable, even among themselves as adults. I really thought this would be good to learn how we can talk to our kids about it and in a way that isn't creating more racism in the future generation. I mean, we know it's kind of always going to be there. There's always going to be some form of racism. But if we're more conscious and talking to our kids about it in specific ways, this might help in reducing some of it, especially among kids. And when they grow up, they'll know better. So you sent me an article, which I will link in the show notes of the episode. And it said something interesting. We talk about needing to talk about race without ever actually talking honestly about race. Mm-hmm. I, be- I believe that it's vital that we help our children and ourselves walk and talk in a way that clears the air and breathes new life in these conversations and our world. So what should we be telling our kids about racism? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um One of the things that we need to dispel, one of the myths that we need to dispel is that children don't see different and children don't see color. They're too young. They're too innocent. So we don't have to do anything about it until they're older. What our research is showing is that kids are seeing race very early and they're also attaching meaning to race very early. So what happens is that when we as parents don't talk about it, What we're doing is we're allowing the negative ideations around race and racism to take root in the minds of our children. And and how are they getting those messages? Well, in, in multiple ways. If you look at the average children's book does not contain diverse characters. It is predominantly white kids in white environments. And if there's a racialized character in it, that person is seldom one of the central characters in the book. They're an add-on. They're someone who who gets stuck in somewhere in the back of the picture. So there's this idea that um, because our kids don't understand, we don't really need to upset them. If you look at, um, let's say, Disney movies, for example, 
one of the things that I have said to, to my students is that Disney movies are some of the most racist, sexist. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And I grew up watching Disney movies. <laughs> we all did, you know, yeah. and, and we, we, our kids watch cartoons and they watch the, you know, these different shows and they are so highly stereotypical. So if you think of the Lion King, for example, which uh, I think I've watched the Lion King probably about 40 times. Mm -hmm. I've had to watch it again with each kid, right? <laughs> and you have four kids. <laughs> I do. I have four children. And um, if you think of that movie, right? Even though technically it said it was located in Africa, you looked at Mufasa, who had the golden locks and it was just flowing and they lived in the light. Mm -hmm. And then you looked at all the characters, like Mufasa's brother, for example, who was very dark. And they lived in the dark lands, in the bad places. So we're not only showing our kids visually the differences, what we're also telling them is who's entitled to what. Hmm. So if you are dark, you get to be in those dark spaces. If you think of the hyenas in Lion King, the hyenas are considered to be scavengers. They're not considered to be, you know, they're not the dogs you want to bring home, right? Yeah. Voices of all the characters who played the hyenas were racialized bodies. They were black and Hispanic, hmm. right? So again, at a very, very unconscious levels and subconscious levels under the surface, we're reinforcing in our children who belongs where, who sounds in what particular way. Because if you think of um, one of the hyenas, he couldn't even speak, giggle, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're going to really do this work, we need to start, my argument is before our children are born. And what I mean by that is as parents, we need to start thinking about what am I going to tell my child when they come into this world? Do I know enough about these issues? Do I care enough about these issues mm -hmm. to educate myself on it? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I find that with a lot of parents, even and even Black parents, they do not talk to their children about race. So then what happens is that when the kids encounter racism, it becomes a shock to their system. It's almost, it becomes a form of trauma. And that's really what racism is. It is a form of trauma. So to me, as parents, whether you're, you're white, whether you're black, whether you're Chinese, it is important for you to have a plan in play to talk to your children about race. And again, in child appropriate language. Yes. So we can start as early as like when they're infants, like with books? Absolutely. Because if you think of what are some of the books that you buy for your children, are you making sure that when you buy the book, there are diverse characters in it? Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I was very intentional in terms of doing is that I would never buy my children a picture book if they could not see themselves represented in it. Mm. right and not only that they had to see themselves positively represented in those my daughter came home from school so she's she's now 13 so this incident happened I would say about maybe five years ago there is an author who writes a series of books and what's interesting about it is so my daughter went to the library at her school she saw this book with a little black girl on it and she was so excited that she just had to bring this book home. Well, much to her surprise, as she gets into the book, the characters in the book are so awful that she comes running down the hall saying, Mom, Mom, you got to see this. You got to see this. So the, the story is of this little girl in Africa 
who her family is so poor that her pet is a rat. And all the characters are running around barefooted, um, clear signs of poverty. Even the dentist, which was interesting, the dentist in the book had only two teeth in his mouth, right? Now, when kids are exposed to those kinds of examples of their identity, as a child, you don't want to connect. You don't want to see. So you're going to push it away. So uh, one of my colleagues had done some research years ago uh, looking at why is it that, that Black kids aren't reading the books that are in the library. Showing is that because of how negatively Blackness is portrayed in those books, the kids reject it. Hmm. So not only do we have to sort of think about them having access to the books, we need to think about, well, who are the characters in the book and how are they being displayed? Because if the characters are being are negatively displayed, it means that for kids who are racialized, you're undermining their healthy racial development. And for white kids, they're getting messages that reinforces their sense of superiority. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, confirming for them quite early that those who don't look like them are poor or those who don't look like them are ugly. So not only do we have to sort of think about how early we expose them to it, we also need to think about what is it that we're exposing them, right, in Mm. terms of the content of the books. Wow, that's so interesting because I have uh, two kids. My 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 eldest is four, and Mm -hmm. he loves books. I mean, the books he's looking at are not characters; they're like objects or animals. Can this apply in a way to the topic of racism or does it have to be people in the book? You know, if we go back to The Lion King, right, they used animals, Mm. but even through the use of the animals, they racialized it. Got it. Right. So it's not just uh, about the animals or the objects. It's what are the roles that they're playing? Here's another example. Transformers, the movie. Yes. In one of the the Transformers series, there were twin cars. The cars spoke with what is considered to be a stereotypical Black accent, right? But what was interesting was that they would say things like, well, we can't read. So even though visually you're seeing a car, Mm. that car then gets paired with a, a highly stereotypical accent to black and then you now layer on the stereotype that black people can't read so what message are you sending to children who are looking at that movie wow um here's another uh, example toy story yeah. my oldest son he recently turned 29 and i think toy story came out when he was about seven or eight and when we left the movie he very quietly said to me mommy there were no black toys And he was seven? Yeah. Don't people play with black toys? There were no black characters story, right? So even when uh, people are making movies and they're envisioning who the characters are going to be in the movies, Mm -hmm. black bodies are eliminated, right? There were were no Indian um, toys. There were no Chinese toys. So how did you reply to his comment? You know, I said to him, well, let's talk about that. And let's talk about the ways in which sometimes um, people send messages about where they think you should be. And what do you do with those messages? How do you begin to understand where those messages are coming from? And as well, how might you now do things differently for yourself? 
So with my kids, what I've always done is I've said, let's understand where this comes from. Why is it that we see these movies and all the characters are white? Well, I want you to think about who's making the movies. Who has the money to make the movies? Who do they think they're making the movies for? Mm-hmm. Right? And all of it still comes back to the notions of power. Mm-hmm. Who has the power to control what we see and what messages we're exposed to? So because I've, I've had those conversations with my children from the time they were old enough to speak, right? mm-hmm. they're quite tuned into when something isn't working or when mm-hmm. something needs to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's <laughs> developing their critical thinking skills, not really believing everything you hear, but dissecting, okay, why is this going on? Why is this being said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And, and I think part of it as well is kids have this sort of keen sense of right and wrong mm-hmm. and fairness. So imagine, you know, you're, you're reading a book with your, with your kids and being able to say, oh, who seems to be missing in this story? Or is there anyone in the story that looks like you? Or is there anyone in the story who looks like your friend, right? So my daughter, when she was younger, she was reading a book and, um, I think she was about two because she learned to read quite early. And there was a little black boy in the book. And she said to me, that one looks like me. And I said, well, which one? And she pointed to the little boy. I said, but that's a boy. Because I'm trying to think, well, what specifically is it that she's connecting to in that specific character? Right. And she said to me, well, he has skin just like mine. And even though it was a boy, that wasn't the point of connection for her. It was that... In that book, she saw herself as a Black girl, as one of the main characters in that. But then it provides an opportunity for us to have dialogue. Exactly. And really doing it in a way, because remember, you don't have to teach them everything about it in that one sitting. Mm -hmm. Right? It's let's start the conversation. Let's pick it up someplace else. Let's talk about it the next time something shows up. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it even when nothing shows up right? You're sitting having a snack. Remember that day we were reading the book and we talked about this? Let's talk about that some more because Mm. we we tend to be very reactive to race and racism Mm -hmm. as opposed to being proactive. Yeah. And I think that's part of the challenge that we have. So you touched on something I actually wanted to mention. It's asking important questions to our kids about how they see themselves mm-hmm. and and sometimes how they might see themselves. It might be based on racial stereotypes. Like you said in the beginning, once you're certain and confident with who you are and how you define yourself, then these comments shouldn't affect you as much, I guess. As much. As much. I mean, (laughs) you know, uh, so I said to you earlier that I was at a meeting earlier with my um, at my daughter's school. Mm -hmm. She's now 13. And had to deal with some incidences of racism at the school. And her first reaction when she told me about it was, but mom, please don't do anything about it because um, I don't want them to single me up. Right. So remember when I talked earlier about when you experience a victimization, it's almost as though your first response is I need to protect the person who is victimizing you. Mm-hmm. So to be able to have the conversation with my daughter to say, I understand what you're going through, but it's important for you to know that if this doesn't stop, it's going to continue. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So it's taken a while, but what we did today, and I had to push for it, was for an assembly to talk about these issues. I made arrangements to have a psychologist come in. I made arrangements to have um, representation from the police force there, because it's important for us to understand that more and more people are getting charged. Okay. So an assembly, you mean she's in high school? She's in grade eight. Grade eight. Okay. The assembly included grades eight, nine, and 10. Okay. Because it was important to expand it beyond the individual incident, Mm -hmm. right? Or the sort of the individual series of incidences and to look at how is this impacting the environment, the school culture? How is it impacting notions of safety? How does racism wear you down? So if you think of the research that comes out of the U.S. and comes out of Canada as well, what it shows is that as soon as kids who are racialized come into contact with any public school system, so we're talking early childhood education environments, they start experiencing racism in comments such as, you can't be the princess because princesses don't look like you. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, Or people saying, well, no, you can't play with me because my mom says that you're black or you're brown and I can't play with you. Mm -hmm. Or people saying things like your skin is dirty. Mm -hmm. So then imagine a child being told that their skin is dirty. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to try and wash it off. Right. Mm -hmm. A child who is racialized or, you know, has a dark complexion, you can't rub your skin off. So. We're exposing children to trauma quite early in the Mm. form of race-based trauma, and we're not intervening. Who's not intervening? Is that the school system, the teachers, or the parents? All of the above. Really? All of the above. Wow. Right. And I think this is where, when we talk about privilege, if you don't live it, you have the privilege not to deal with it. You have mm-hmm. the privilege not to even think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for those of us who have black kids and brown kids, we must think about it because we have to prepare our children for survival in it. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I use the analogy of um, of a coat. When you when you send your children out in winter, you make sure you put on the coat and the hat and the mitts and the gloves and the boots, right? Mm-hmm. Pairing them for the elements. We also have to prepare our children for living in a racist society. Unlike winter, which comes and goes, racism is there. Hmm. If we don't give our kids the appropriate coat and boot and myth and hats to deal with racism, right, those around them aren't seeing it. So when someone says, oh, can I touch your hair and just sticks their hand in your hair? Well, that's an invasion of your body and your space. But if the teacher understands it as, oh, well, she was just being curious, Mm. then the teacher minimizes it. But then when the fifth or sixth or seventh person comes up to you and grabs your hair, right, which is a reality that that our children live with. Well, by the sixth or the seventh time, when you've told people to stop, when you've gone to the teacher, um, well, you're a child, you're getting frustrated. Mm hmm. And if nobody is stopping and you turn around and you slug the person who touched you this yeah. time, well, who's getting in trouble for it, right? So racism is, it, it tends to be minimized. There are no bruises for the most part that you can see when it happens. Yeah. 
So you're living in in Toronto or Toronto area? Yeah. And even then being like in Canada, multicultural, you had to tell at your daughter's school, we need to have an intervention. What was their point of view on not making it a big deal? You know, I think initially it was, um, yes, well, we've heard that there was some comments. I'm like, "Mm, no, no, no. This was a clear-cut case of racism. When, you know, one 13-year-old girl decides that she can very clearly say to another 13-year-old, I don't like Black people. And you Black people this and Black people that. That's not, you know, it's not an off comment. It's it's very clear-cut incidences of racism. Mm -hmm. So when when it gets minimized, I'm like, no, no, no. I I think you've forgotten that there are laws in place clearly address these types of behaviors so what was interesting is that rather than the family dealing with it the family moved the child from the school so the child that said those racist comments Mm -hmm. she changed schools yes okay so that's okay i have to ask you a question that it, it linked back to this Initially, I thought if children are in multicultural schools where they they see kids from different backgrounds, diversity, um, does that help to decrease the amount of racism they feel or think? So what we've seen is um, it's very mixed. And here's what I mean by that. Um, you have situations where people are in a diverse environment in terms of the student body. But those in positions of power are predominantly white. So you have shifted the narrative or the the visual ethic with regards to who's in power Mm. and who has the right power. So as a white child in that school, you know where the power base lies. You know that you, you are aligned with that power base. As a child who's racialized, you're getting the exact same message. As a person of color, you're not entitled to be in this position of power. So if there is no intentionality in terms of looking at and addressing these issues, then simply being in a diverse space, which is what people have connected to, well, we're multicultural, so we're okay. Mm -hmm. Well, here's where that, that idea falls flat. Increasingly, we're seeing incidences of racism. Increasingly. Um, Oh, absolutely. As a society. So if you look at Stats Canada data, we're not seeing reduction in racism. We're seeing increases in racism. When you start looking at the growth of these alt-right movements and these quote-unquote neo-Nazi movements, well, who's joining them? It's not the the 50-year-old or the 60-year-old white male or female. It's the 17, 18, 19-year-old who would have grown up in a diverse society, who would have been exposed to diversity. But what is happening is we're not actually engaging in those critical conversations. There's the idea that If there's a person of color in the room, we have arrived. Ah. And I remind people that we haven't changed the way in which we talk about difference. We haven't changed the way in which we talk about other groups, which means that our kids are exposed to the exact same conceptions of Blackness, the exact same conceptions of First Nations identities that they were exposed to 50 years ago. Nothing has changed in terms of that. Wow. I did not think it was still like that. Well, you know, it's funny. I um, I do training, whether it's, it's diversity or um, confronting anti-Black racism. And I do this exercise wherein which I ask people to take 30 seconds and tell me what have you 
heard said about blind. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not if you believe it, but what have you heard? And whether mm-hmm. I do it with teachers, whether I do it with managers, whether I do it with frontline staff, whether I do it with principals, with trustees, doesn't matter who I do it with, the exact same things come up. In 30 to 45 seconds, they come up with a list of 15 to 20 characteristics that every single one of them is negative. But then they add good at sports and music. Well, that's a good characteristic. I said, no, because you still, you don't control the sporting teams. You don't own the sporting teams. So no. In addition to which, when you say sports, what it also means is that you're not a thinker. Here we are in 2019 and people are giving me the exact same stereotypes that have been attached to black for hundreds of years. So we, we have this illusion that things have changed. I'm always fascinated when, when I am told by white people that what you're saying is wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I said, but do you live in our bodies? Do you, are you there with us all the time? Right. Yeah. With my kids, they have learned how to point out to their friends who are not black what's going on. And it's interesting when their friends start to see it how they sort of get into the conversations differently or how they look at the world a bit different, mm-hmm. right? And not different, bad, different in terms of understanding what injustice looks like, mm-hmm. right? And I think foundationally, that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about forms and patterns of in- injustice and unjust behavior that essentially, if we go back to that definition of, of racism, it limits who gets access to power mm-hmm. and it also then limit what type of social resources you have access to. So something that most white people would not have to think about is where can I buy a house in terms of my racial presentation? The assumption is if I've got the money, I go wherever I want and I buy a house. Yeah. Well, We then have to think about, oh my gosh, how diverse is the neighborhood? How white is the neighborhood? What is that going to mean in terms of my children? What are they going to experience? What's schooling going to be like for them? And we also then have to deal with real estate agents, many of whom will not take us into predominantly white neighborhoods or the neighborhoods that are considered to be good neighborhoods. Wow. Right. um, I have to ask you, your kids, are their friends mostly black? United Nations. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's because of you and what you've taught them? Um, I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also do hold their kid, their, their friends accountable because I also have the conversations with their friends. Right. Mm-hmm. And I say things to them like, because I have three boys mm-hmm. and one girl. Mm-hmm. All of my boys are, I mean, my, my shortest boy is six foot one. Oh, wow. Right. So I've got like six, one, six, two, six, five. Right. And I've had to say to to their friends, here's what I need you to understand. If you guys go driving someplace and you get stopped by the cop, you're going to go home to your parents. My son or sons could end up in a coffin. Oh, my God. That gave me chills. Right. Um, so when you when you choose to make stupid decisions, if you choose to go to the store and say, oh, you know, um, let's dare you to steal something. Mm. Right. I said, while you get to go home, my son will go to prison. I need you to understand that the world treats my black son differently than they will treat you as someone who is is white, who is Filipino, who is Chinese. Right. That's the reality that my boys live with. Because I have those conversations quite openly with their friends, their friends do have a different understanding. 
right? And they're more sensitized to these issues, right? So for me, when I say to people that as a mother of Black male children, that once you find out that you are carrying a male child, you stop breathing because you know what the world does to Black males. And the next time that you are going to breathe is when you literally take your last breath because it doesn't matter how old your sons get. You are always concerned about the way in which the world treats them. Do you think in North America, let's focus on just that part, it's worse for Black kids as opposed to if you have Latino background, Asian, all the other on different nationalities? So it's it's interesting because um, no matter how we slice the data, uh, yeah, it's Black kids, particularly Black males, who are targeted the most. The other group that is sort of closest to that um, are kids who have disabilities. But now you layer on race and disability and you've got quite a concoction happening there. Right. Mm. So we have stereotypes about other groups, right? It's about Chinese people, that they're that they're quiet, that they're reserved. And it's those same stereotypes that we that we have about Chinese children, right? Whereas the stereotype is that, well, black boys are rambunctious and they're loud and they're aggressive. Mm -hmm. So what often happens is that when you have teachers evaluating these students, the teachers are also going from their own race-based bias, right? So not only are they evaluating the children um, based on their skewed schemas, it means then that their form of intervention with these children are also going to be skewed. The forms of disciplining are also going to be skewed. Okay, so as parents, how can we, up to a certain point, make sure that like, we want to expose our kids to a healthy environment regarding race? Mm-hmm. What are some key things we should look for? Well, I think for starters, um, as parents, we have to first do our own work. We have to figure out what are our attitudes? What are our beliefs, right? So one of the things that um, shows up in the research as well is that what children see happening in their homes, they will repeat in public. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if your kids are growing up in an all white environment, right, where they're seeing the only people who get invited to your homes are white. That's telling them something. So you need to sort of think about how, how diverse is my friendship circle? How diverse is my network? Mm-hmm. Right? To what extent do I take myself outside of my comfort zones to engage with, with other communities in non-stereotypical way? Mm-hmm. Right? So the parents have to start off with doing that work themselves. What that then translates into is that the kids are going to start learning different messages once the parents start doing it differently. Uh, the parents also need to learn the language to use. So if a child says something, let's say, oh, you know, there's a black kid at school or there's a Chinese kid at school. And immediately the parent says, no, 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 no. Don't say that. Don't say that. That's rude. Well, actually, it's not. It's a descriptor. You're describing the person. Where we have to sort of think about it is, well, what are the meanings that our children are attaching to someone being black or Chinese? Hmm. Right. Do you understand the difference? Yeah. So like I'm white. Mm -hmm. If I want to describe a child at my son's school, daycare, they're black and I don't particularly know their name. I'll say, oh, you know, that black girl in your class. Okay, to say it this way or it's um, it's not the right way. Like this is something I think about. And I'm (laughs) 
So one of the things I've always said to, to my children, I said, you know, describing a feature is not a problem. What is the meaning that you attach to the feature? So are you talking about, you know, oh, there's this little black girl in your classroom who, you know, I think she's, she's so cute or she's so smart. Is it that, oh, well, you know, and the child was misbehaving, you know, that black one. Well, mm, those are very different meanings, okay. right? You may have used the same word black, but what you attach to it means a lot, right? Mm. So in the same way, you can say the black girl, the white girl, the Chinese girl, in and of itself, those terms are descriptive. Mm. But what is the meaning that we add to it? Because one of the things that, that we say when we do this work is that it is important for you to see my race simply because by seeing my race, you understand that I have a different history from you, that I have traveled a different path from you, mm-hmm. and that it is an understanding that there are differences in our experiences that we can begin to have a dialogue. But if you take on this colorblind narrative, what that does is it pushes the racism underground, right? Because we know that we've learned to be politically correct. It's saying when parents or teachers, when they use I'm colorblind, there is no color. We all, we're all the same. One race, we're all the same. This promotes racism. So here's why we, that whole notion of colorblindness is extremely problematic. And then who gets the luxury and the privilege to say that they're colorblind, right? Because people of color can't be colorblind, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. our lives are significantly framed based on the color of our skin. Mm -hmm. Um, So this becomes another way of white communities sort of distancing themselves from acts of racism. You say that you're colorblind, but yet still you live in all white neighborhoods. You say that you're colorblind, but all your friends are white. You say that you're colorblind, but you go to an all-white church. Yeah. How did that happen? If you didn't see color, how is it that your entire circle is one color? Mm. Right? So there are so many ways in which that notion makes no sense whatsoever. What we're saying is don't not see our color. Understand that our color comes with a history. Right. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying is that our history is not your version of what you think our history is. So as opposed to, you know, just automatically making assumptions about people, one of the things I say to folks is ask the person to tell me a bit about yourself, because we say things like, so where are you from? Worst question ever. (laughs) Right? Yeah, I've done that. Yes. Um, Can you tell me a bit about your background? Can you tell me a bit about your history? Because in that, what you're listening for is what are the aspects of this person's identity that they privilege? Not that you think is important, but that they think is important. And that really is where the starting point of the dialogue comes from. Um, But in the same way that you can say the black kid, you can say the white kid, you can say the Chinese kid and simply use it as a descriptor. Colorblindness is a fallacy that gets used to prevent people from actually dealing with racism, which essentially it just it makes things worse. So when a kid comes and says the teacher is treating me differently because I'm black or I am brown and the principal says, oh, no, 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 we're colorblind. Mm. What you've now done is essentially you've re-victimized that child, right? Because one, they've experienced the, the, the racism, and then you're telling them that there is no truth in terms of what they're saying. So now you're calling them a liar, right? Hmm. And then you're going to send them back to the classroom to re-experience and to relive that trauma and to have it happen again. 
mm-hmm. right? Um, so colorblindness is a really, really problematic concept that we have to, to strip away. Do you think that, generally speaking, the education system for kids, it's very white privileged? Um, Because I thought thought it was better, like, they were trying to be more inclusive in their, uh, maybe their, the content, the books, uh, the activities. uh, So that's a yes and a no uh, response. So what I mean by that is that there has been a very um, positive and intentional move towards including much more comprehensive ideas about First Nations, Indigenous and Métis communities, for example. Mm-hmm. Is it all across the board, you know, all across Canada? No, but there has been a very sort of positive push towards including more comprehensive ideas, right, in the curriculum. When blackness, for example, gets talked about, it's talked about in the context of slavery. Yes, right? history. Yeah. Exactly. So one of the things I say to people is that slavery is not a black story. Really, slavery is a European story of violence. Right. So imagine being a black child in a classroom. It's now Black History Month. And here's the story. Your people were slaves and our people owned your people. It Which, sounds bad. But that's yeah. essentially what the story is, right? But what seldom gets talked about is the African presence on this earth. It doesn't get talked about um, African involvement in science. It doesn't talk about African involvement in astronomy, in the development of the first systems of politics on Earth, the first religions on Earth. You know, people don't talk about all of the inventions that Blacks created even while enslaved. So mm-hmm. I'll say things to people like, well, how many of you have a cell phone? How many of you um, have GPS? How many of you have washing machines? How many of you know what a traffic light is? How many of you have ever been on a train? And they sort of look at me that, you know, really weirdly. And I'm like, do you understand that Black invented many of those things and some of the significant functioning mechanisms for some of those things? That's mm-hmm. a very different conversation than, so Blacks were slaves and then they were free. And oh, by the way, it was the good whites that freed them. Right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, it hasn't shifted to a point where we're actually telling a comprehensive story. So what then happens is that the everyday person has never even heard about anything about Blacks other than what shows up in the media. I have to say, because I grew up in northern Alberta, a small white community, and I never thought about race because I was never exposed to it. But when I moved to Montreal to go to university, and it's very multicultural here and diverse, I got curious about Mm -hmm. other cultures. Like, wow, this is fun. This is different. I want to meet these people. And (laughs) I didn't think I was racist. Until like my partner, he's from Africa, but he's he he's white. And he started telling me that's a racist comment. Why are you saying this? And until someone called me out on it, I didn't know because that's how I grew up. I mean, if someone would have told me, are you racist? I'd say no, not at all. Like, what are you talking about? That's bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's what a lot of people like what it happens especially for white people because I was never exposed to diversity it was white community white friends white school so you never thought about it 
It wasn't a question, an issue until someone really told me this is not right. That's when I started getting interested in, in the subject and reading and just being aware mm-hmm. of it. So let, let's look at a couple of pieces that you just said there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I always say to people, when you tell me that you've grown up in um, a very monocultural community, mm-hmm. community that didn't have diversity, I'm going to challenge you on that. Because what you're telling me is that every single person had the same height, same body structure, um, practiced religion in the same way, had the same social class, had the same family backgrounds, had the same sexual orientation, had the same gender. And that's not true. Mm. So there was lots of sites of diversity, but there may not have been a lot of race-based diversity. Mm. Right? So you've always been in diverse environments, just not racially diverse environments. Um, secondly, the idea of, you know, it's like, I, I just wanted to get to know, um, there's this way in which difference gets exotified. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. So it's not a, that I'm connecting with you as another person who, who is equal. It's like, um, you know, there's this exotic thing that I want to try out, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which is problematic, right? Even in terms of you saying, my husband is from Africa, that tells me nothing. Because I say to people, but Africa is a continent, not a country. Why mm-hmm. do you continue to mark Africa as a country? When there are so many different cultures, histories, languages, norms, practices. So we even need to sort of think about how do we language things, right? Um, because when... I mean, for me, when I hear Africa, I automatically think black. Mm-hmm. And most people I know, it's the same thing. I remember a colleague, when I talked to her about my partner, he grew up in Tunisia, so in Northern Africa, and she thought my kids were black. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't shifted. you know. And I say that because just a, a week ago, I was doing some training and someone says to me, you know, I have a friend from Jamaica. And I know what she meant, and I could have questioned her in the moment, right? but I allowed her to continue her train of thought. So when we went on break, you know, I went over and I said to her, so this is how we racialize geography. We make the assumption that once you say someone is Jamaican, that that must mean they're Black. But when you tell me someone is Jamaican, all you've told me is about their national identity. You've told me nothing about their racial identity because there are Chinese in Jamaica, there are Indians in Jamaica, there are whites in Jamaica, right? If you think of a place like Ireland, well, you make the assumption that everybody from Ireland must be white. Well, we know that's also not true, right? And, and I think of, again, my children because my ex-husband was born in Ireland, but he is black. So imagine my children, um, they're asked to do some sort of school project where they're talking about their parents' history. And I remember my son putting an Irish flag on, on his project. He was all proud and he was cool. And he came back <laughs> home and he says, mom, the teacher says I have to take the Irish flag off. I said, what do you mean you have to take the Irish flag off? Uh, because the teacher says I can't be Irish. I can't have Irish in my background. Um, <laughs> I mean, the teacher says you can't. <laughs> um, but again, uh, with my children, I have given them the space always. Mm-hmm doesn't feel right let's talk about it if something happens let's talk about it right so then in a situation like that i am able to follow the teacher to say well help me to understand what is it that you you were talking about because you told them to do a project you told them to talk about their family history but you've also told my son that he's a liar 
mm-hmm. that he's inventing a history that's not his, when in actuality it is. And there are so many of these types of, of situations and scenarios that kids are exposed to. So when we talk about the subtlety involved and the everydayness of it, how are assignments given? Are we reinforcing stereotype when we show movies in classrooms? What's in our textbooks? So if you look at the average textbook, when it refers to First Nations, Métis, and Indigenous communities, it is always from a deficit perspective. Here's what's wrong, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to looking at, wow, in spite of all that was done to these communities, they're still surviving. Of course, there are challenges, and we have to talk about that. But foundationally, we need to look at the strengths and the capacities that are inherent in all humans, right? So when we talk about race, that becomes the perfect entry point. You know, um, how is Bob different from you? How is Susan different from you? What are the things they do that you think is funny, that you like? What are the nice things about them? So what you're doing is you're essentially saying to your children, look, at the end of the day, there is nothing different between you and your friend except the color of your skin. However, we live in a world where people get treated differently because of the color of their skin, because of their gender, because of where they live. Mm -hmm. And I need you to know that so that when you engage with people who are different from you in some ways, that you do not disrespect them, that you do not dehumanize them, but that you remember that they are just as human as you are. If a child racial tendencies to comment towards other kids and people, mm-hmm. is it likely they're, they're getting those ideas and thoughts from their parents, from their home? You know, I think that's sort of the, um, that's the easy way to look at it. Mm-hmm. But what are the comments that they're hearing when they're at school? Because as I said, when we did the research in the daycare settings, kids are telling other kids, I can't play with you because you're brown. Um, I can't play with you because you smell. So they may be hearing some of it from their parents, yes, but they're also seeing it in the childcare settings. They're seeing it in their classrooms. They're seeing it on the television. They're seeing it in books. Mm-hmm. So I think the easy piece is to blame the parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's just blame the parents. Because then what it means is if we can, quote unquote, fix the parents, we've solved the problem. But the parents are immersed in a society that is racist. So the parents are exposed to it. I think to say it's just about the parents only gives us a slice of the complexity of it. It's the parents plus, 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 plus. Okay. So let's just recap for parents listening today, mothers, caretakers, teachers, what are a few steps they should start doing or continue doing that will help raise kids that are conscious, not racist, or what's the the best way to go about it? Um, So the way I think about it is how do we raise children who are committed to social justice, right? Irrespective of the site, whether it's gender, race, sexual orientation, religion, how do we raise children who are fully committed to socially just engagements, right? And I think if we only want to talk about it in the context of race, sometimes people go, well, why do we keep bringing up that race thing? Right. So I I think it is important for us to sort of look at it in in multiple contexts. So I would say that you must start with yourself as a parent. Mm -hmm. You need to figure out your own stuff. So, for example, what are your thoughts on different communities? How do you engage or not engage with different communities? Because whatever you do, your children will model. The other thing you need to think about is what am I exposing my children to? in terms of books, in terms of images, in terms of of shows, all of those pieces. Now, 
one of the things that can be an amazing learning opportunity is to take a bad show and, and deconstruct it with your children. So sometimes the worst mm. movies can be a really amazing conversation starter. Mm. Right? What did you see in that movie? Right? What messages did they tell you about the Chinese people in that movie? Did you see Chinese people in the movie, by the way? Right? So what do you think about that? Do you think that's okay? Do you, is, a, is there a problem with that? So I, I, there are many things that, that happen around us can use as teachable moments, as opposed to brushing it aside and saying, oh my gosh, I don't want to touch this because I don't know what to do with it. And even if you don't understand race and racism and, and all of its complexities, you can still have a conversation about right and wrong because foundationally kids get that, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I always say to my children is that there's a foundational question that must always guide your interactions with other people. How would I feel if, and then fill in the blank. Ah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So how would I feel if someone treated me badly because of the color of my hair? How would I feel if someone treated me badly because of the way my body was shaped? How would I feel if, right? And then you can add race onto that. So that is also important. I think it is important for people to to venture into different parts of, of the city as mm-hmm. opposed to sort of staying in our little bubbles, mm-hmm. right? Because what often happens is that people cross boundaries in public spaces because they don't have a choice. But at mm. the end of the day, most people go back to their relatively monocultural houses, neighborhoods, community centers. So there is no intentionality in terms of crossing lines of difference. Mm-hmm. Even when people will say things to you, well, my husband is is black or my, my partner is black or whatever the case may be, what that still typically translates into is that their partner has moved into a predominantly white world and there is still very little cross-pollination in terms of ideas. We have to be intentional in terms of who we engage with, how we engage with them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, teach our kids that it's okay to question. Uh, yeah. And it's also okay for us as parents to not know. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that often shuts parents down in terms of having these conversations because the parents themselves are so uncomfortable. But I think in the same way that we go on the internet to find everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> we can also go on the internet and say, you know, is there a show I can find? Is there a cartoon I can find to help my kids understand these issues to my kids about these issues? So parents have to be willing just to do a little bit of extra work. Okay, got it. You can find free resources on that. I sent you a link and literally yes. type in talking to children about race, a million things. And sometimes it's like I said, it's, it's not just about the talking. It's also about the modeling, right? Yes. How many, how many parents are going to go into a library and take out a book? a picture book um, for their kids that has black characters in it. Yeah. Right. And I often say to folks, think about the little everydayness of this. When was the last time you went into a store and saw a postcard with a black baby on it or a Chinese baby? That's the everydayness of mm-hmm. the erasure of race. You go into a store, the majority of the dolls are going to be white. Mm-hmm. And I remember having this conversation with a store manager one day, the exact same doll. The white doll was $20 and the black doll was 60. Whoa. And I was like, are you kidding me, buddy? (laughs) (laughs) And what was the reason? (laughs) Well, they have a different skew number. They have a different skew number. Okay. All right. 
Christmas time, you're looking for an angel to put at the top of your tree. Where are you going to find a black angel? Yeah, I've never seen one. Mm. So, so when we talk about white privilege, those are examples of it, that you can go into a store, you know, whether it's a bookstore, whether it's Christmas, you see yourself positively represented in so many different ways. Hmm. Whereas for, for me and my children, we have to put an extra effort to find a black angel, to find black books, to find anything that represents us in positive ways. Uh, I think we minimize the capacity of children to make sense of information. You know, as you know, you, you've got two kids. If you cut an apple and you put it on a plate and you give one kid a bigger slice than the other kid, they will notice. Right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and yes. there's a starting point with regards to fairness, right? There's a conversation with regards to should your son get a bigger piece of the apple than your daughter? Mm-hmm. And if not, why not? Mm-hmm. Right. So then does that mean that because someone looks different, they should get a smaller piece or a bigger piece of the apple? And every child will yeah. tell you absolutely not. That's not fair. Right. So if we start teaching children quite young, not just about social justice and fairness, but also teach them about the meanings that they attach to words and to descriptors, that's a really amazing entry. Point. Yeah. That's good. So before we end, um, I have one last question, but, but before that, where can our listeners find more about you, your, the work you do? You know, it's, it's funny. Um, you asked me at the start uh, about if I had children because you couldn't find it. Yes. <laughs> um, so one of the things that people don't fully understand is that for those of us who do this kind of work, we often try to keep our world private because oftentimes we experience backlash because of the work that we do. Mm. So I have been asked to, to be more public. I have been asked to put more of my stuff online. And I say, you know, not today. Um, That's fair. Uh, That's fair. Yeah. You know, but actually, if you if people Google me, I'm at Ryerson University. Oftentimes, there's more information about me online. So every so often, my daughter says, "Oh, I Googled you and I found some new stuff." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I honestly didn't find much. But I, yeah, I'm working Mm -hmm. towards putting it all into one spot. Okay. I'll end with one question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast to link it back to the title. So we all know that being a mother, a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Keeping motherhood inspired, what one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? Um, you know, it's it's interesting that you ask that question. And um, one of the things I say to people is I try to figure out what is it that I did in my previous lifetime? Universe to decide to give me these four absolutely amazing human beings to take care of. So to me, my children are a gift that was given to me mm. for me to take care of. Um, are there moments where I'm thinking of how can I pull my hair out? How can I run away so they can never find me again? <laughs> <laughs> If we get to choose to bring children into the world, why mm-hmm. can't we then choose to just not be around them? Mm-hmm. Um, but what keeps me going is um, when I see these absolutely beautiful human beings 
just blooming in front of my eyes. Just as I'm sitting talking to you here, my son's texting me, right? (laughs) But I think foundationally for me, it's about wanting my kids to understand that they are loved. Mm. So I've said to folks that I firmly believe that if children know that they are loved, there is so much that they're able to to manage. So no matter how bad the day gets, no matter how challenging things get, I need my children to always know that they are loved by their mother and they will always have a safe space to come to. And I think for a lot of kids today, they don't have that haven. They don't have that safe space where when the world hits them, that they can come home and feel safe. I'd... um to say to my kids, I don't care what happens out there. Your home must be your safe haven. I don't care how how long you've been out. That door is always open. So because mm-hmm. I have a 29-year-old, right? And it's not uncommon for him to come by and visit. And, you know, we're sitting on, on the couch just chatting. And he's got his head on my lap, right? Um, my 21-year-old, um, I get text messages just to say I love you. Um, so, mm. yeah, um, for me, it was just absolutely vital. And I say to my children that it, it is said that there are four sections of the heart. And all of them, they're in a section of my heart. And if any part of my heart doesn't work, the rest of it doesn't work. Um, so yeah, love, love. I just, I'm just so grateful for the gift of my children. Wow. That's beautiful. I love this. Ah, well, that's it. Thank you. Oh my gosh. It was amazing conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired Podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening. Two, three, four, five, six stars. Whatever you feel reflect podcast, this will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>